This podcast contains swear words. Hey everyone, welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. That's me. A podcast about art making, creativity, not giving up, I'm looking at you, and living well in the process. Process? Scone? Scone? I'm coming from the perspective of a performing artist, but the issues and ideas discussed here apply to all of us. Whether you consider yourself an artist or not, life is a creative act. Cue the chirpy birds. And I'm your host, as you know, Tara Cheyenne Friedenberg, a choreographer, actor, dancer, writer, and educator. What else can I add there? Parent, partner, um, I love to clutter clear. Living on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish Nation on the west coast of Turtle Island. That pause was too long. And before we dive headlong into my interview with the Denise Clark, associate artist with One Yellow Rabbit, and my mentor, and a wonderful, wonderful artist... I'd like to remind you to please like, rate, review, share, all of those things. Word of mouth, that's a cool thing. That totally works. You know what I've been listening to lately? I've been listening to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. It's really interesting. So many great artists and what they think and have ideas about. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to do it in that voice. And if you do have the inclination, donations really help to support the artists that we interview and keep the podcast going. Go to TaraCheyenne.com, upper right-hand corner, click donate, takes you right there. We'll also link to that page in the show notes. All right, my interview with Denise Clark. If you don't know who Denise is, well, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Denise Clark, an associate artist with One Yellow Rabbit in Calgary, Alberta, and is the director of the One Yellow Rabbit Summer Lab Intensive. She has created and co-created several shows for One Yellow Rabbit, several, there's actually a lot in this list, including The Erotic Irony of Old Glory, Touch, Breeder, Solo, Featherland, Sign Language, A Fabulous Disaster, Smash, Cut, Freeze, and Wag. In 2013, Denise was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Calgary and made a member of the Order of Canada. You have to say it in that voice. I think it's actually um, a law. All right. All right. Here we are with the Denise Clark. You're in your home office in Calgary, Alberta. Isn't it nice? It looks sunny there. Yeah, it's just light pouring in, but it's actually been, you know, kind of that Calgary spring weird. Oh, it's beautiful. It's 12 degrees. Oh, oh it just went down to four. Oh, now I'm sweating. Oh, now I'm, it's, oh, it's snowing. <laughs> Bring all of your clothes with you when you leave the house. All oh, of them. Always. Drives me mad, but I mean, it's my town. It's my hometown, so I'm okay. You are born and bred in Alberta. Is that true? Yeah, I was raised here. I'm, and I don't know if this is the same in every city in the world, but when 
I tell people that people will go, one of the rare ones. And I don't know whether that's just that we are so transient in this world now that there's all kinds of people from everywhere in all cities, but Calgarians do love to claim their unique place as actually born and raised here. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. My dad doesn't live in Calgary anymore, but born and raised in Calgary. To tell you the truth, I don't know that many people who are still in Calgary. Same thing in Vancouver. That's what I mean. Yeah. You know, in the 80s, when the rabbits and me and a few of us decided, well, we're not leaving. We're staying here. And this is our town. We kind of like it's shabby, busted, because that was during the really serious bust of 1982. It was like, we love it here. It's freaky and weird and a conservative bastion that we're going to constantly batter down the walls of. And we loved it. Still do. You still love it. Love it. Hate it, love it, love it, hate it, hate it, love it, hate it, love it, love it. It's so interesting because there's so much of, oh, Alberta out here on the West Coast. Really? I never noticed. It can be very tiresome. Also because BC is pretty darn conservative as soon as you drive even a little bit east. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Oh, look, a convoy. How interesting. But I feel like you and so many artists in Calgary just explode that idea that Alberta is so conservative, just like everywhere. But do you feel like you and the rabbits are part of that change that has happened over the last 40 years? We certainly like to imagine we are. We credit ourselves widely, as you know. We're very proud (laughs) of what we did to, you know, change stuff around Can we swear on your podcast? A hundred percent. The podcast is called Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. Oh, okay. So we're very proud of how much shit we changed here in Calgary. And it was a really dramatically Squaresville place. I mean, the thing I loved about it, though, was that there was just enough, you know, a couple of dance people, a couple of visual artists, and then all the punk bands from the 80s. And so... We just all stayed and performed a couple of performance artists and stuff. And then the artist-run galleries started to spring up. That kind of really inspired us to DIY it. And so we do feel really, really proud of our stick to because I do, in all seriousness, refer to myself as a chicken shit celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning like I have this tiny, tiny, tiny number of people who know who I am nationally and maybe a little bit internationally because of what we did here in this town and how proud we were of it. And then how free we were of any cultural trends that were speaking of what must be, what must be in theater and in dance and in theater dance, which you know all about that fabled rule book that we were like, there's no fucking rule book. Shut up. Yeah, totally. You can do whatever you want. You can actually be funny. You can be disrespectful, you know, to yourselves and to your own community. You can do whatever you want. You just better be really good at it. Right. There you go. It's the really good at it part. I think I want to talk about that in a minute, but I feel like being not in the hip crowd is a bit of a superpower for me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, nobody's expecting me to do, I don't know, a big internationally selling, touring, wah, wah, wah show. So I'm going to just go over here and get weirder. Yeah. 
But also I'm hearing being in a city where there isn't already that rule book established, the gatekeepers are not there. They're in, you know, Toronto, Montreal, New York, whatever. Belgium. Belgium, areas. Of course. I went there once. I did a show there. A couple people came. I performed for four people there too. Maybe they were the same four. They were. They were Canadians, expats. I think they were the other dancers from the show that was just before mine. But you already talked about that a little bit, the power of being outside or... Well, there's really nothing hipper or cooler in the world than people who just go their own way, do their own thing. And it's always been that way. Always, always the underground is populated by iconoclasts and people who are individualists and, you know, really fascinated or almost fetishistically so by certain kinds of aesthetic principles or ideals or goals. And so what more could you want than to be free to burrow in and explore those things unless you want to be a star? And that's something that I figured out, luckily, and I don't know really how, but by the time I was about 28, it was like, what's this last sort of niggling thing in my heart and soul about New York or London? You know, should I use my British heritage to go over with my passport and take over the London stage scene? Maybe I should. And, or do I want to go to Belgium? <laughs> Or Berlin, which was a thing in the 80s too, believe me. Or New York and even Toronto, which seemed like, well, no, I don't want to go to Toronto. No offense, it's my second favorite city in the country. I also love Toronto. Yeah. So we're not T.O. bashing. But I just finally was like, well, why would I do that right now? I'm doing all this exploring and I'm working and I'm making so many inroads into my own creativity and aesthetics. And geez, if I go, I'm going to be a waiter for five years, maybe, unless I have a big break. And will that be depressing? And the answer was always, well, yeah, it will definitely be depressing. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. Plus, I'd already begun to discover my own little economy that I was living really, I was teaching and loving that and being able to do some really important research for myself and movement and theatrical expression and stuff. So it was like, the only reason I would leave is because I have some half-baked notion of stardom. Right. And, you know, people will go like, yes, but are you content to be the big fish in a little pond? And it was like, well, okay, that's really negating that experience. That really does. It it sort of drips with derision, that kind of statement. So I was like, well, I guess I do. Yeah, I guess I like what I've established here because I've got a community and it's serving me and I'm serving it. Big fish in a small pond, but part of the pond getting bigger. You're part of the growing of the pond. Yeah, once I got over the part where it was like, So are you quite a phenomenal artist on the stage? And, you know, here's where my ego might explode your actual tape recorder. But I thought, yeah, you know, I'm amazing on stage because, you know, I've been told and could tell. I know what I'm doing out here. So isn't that what I want to just get my chops, just be on a stage, just work. And I loved One Yellow Rabbit. And it was like, I love this work. If I leave, it won't include me. So anyway, all that to answer, like, I'm very proud of staying here and building a body of work with colleagues I admire and respect. I remember in, I think it was 2002, maybe 2001, when I took the lab. 
Yeah. And you said to me, do you want to be a star? Do you want to be a working artist? I remember so clearly sitting in a little coffee shop in, what's the building called where all the theaters are? Well, the Epcor Center then, now the Arts Commons. And I think I was about 27 or 28. Yeah. And I remember being like, oh, well, that seems so clear to me. I want to be a working artist. I want to be doing the thing. And that is not to negate people who want to be stars, but it does take you out of that consistent practice Mm -hmm. of, you know, teaching your classes, going out there, making your dumb show, trying it, making it less of a dumb show, trying it again. I tell people that story all the time. In fact, I've probably shared that on this very podcast, but I feel like that question is so good. Well, I think it is because, you know, if you want to be a star, you got to break it down because, you know, like you say, there's no shame in going like, yeah, I want to be a star. Sure. Get going to one of those centers early and sweat it out. And what does it mean? It means you want money. You want to have some dough. Because I think the two go together in people's minds. It's like, well, if you're a star, there's a whole bunch of perks, you know, foremost being probably financial remuneration that we do not see at this scale. So just for listeners, in case it wasn't abundantly clear at this point, working in dance and theater is not necessarily going to get you rich. I know it's a shock, but I just want to make that clear. My colleague, Blake. Also, my ex-husband, who I still work with bizarrely and happily, he sort of steps back whenever anyone refers to what we all do as the industry, because it's not an industry, it's a pursuit. Ooh, You know, people regularly say, our industry. Well, okay, that kind of corporate speak has just crept in and begun to smother some of the happy, joyful, punk displeasure we had with anything of the sort. Really, nobody called what we did in 1983. I want to build the industry here. It's so capitalist. It's so like, what's the product? Yeah. And, you know, language does matter. I think we've established that in the 21st century. But I still am very suspicious by any kind of referencing of corporate language in respect to artists and art making, like at this scale, unless you're commercial enterprise, which is a whole other thing, which I also have a big old bunch of respect for. It's so cool. You know, I've sat through Broadway shows that have just thrilled me to my inner being. But, and again, even if somebody walked out and said, oh my God, is that Denise Clark? We need to get her in this show. Well, maybe that would have worked for me. Maybe I'd have been like, okay. (laughs) Okay, sure. I'll come be in the show. But, you know, I went to a cattle call audition in New York City. Did you? Yes, I did for Bob Fosse. Ooh. And let me tell you, I walked in and I had maybe a couple of inches around me. And people like literally ready to elbow you in the throat and the eye at any second. And it was really fun and really weird and really heavy. Then it just turned into really not fun so fast. And then I just was like, you know, I I actually hate this. And so I just like stuck to the sidelines and watched and then left. 
Oh my God. I can't imagine. I mean, it sounds like a scene from Chorus Line. When I saw all that jazz. Great movie. You should watch it. Oh yeah. I was like, I think, is is this me? Because it was exactly what it was like. That movie did do a really good job of revealing the horror. Bob Fosse, he was not a very, you know, he was a prick, but he was really good. And his influence is still just resonating like crazy. I don't know if you saw the Fosse Verdon special, but it was very well done. And they kind of focus on who they were as human beings. And you do see the price that one would pay for that kind of place in a city like New York. Oh, yeah. I was not cut out for that. I remember being in an audition for, I think for the National Ballet School. I went to Royal Winnipeg briefly, but, and you're in a room and we were all like little girls Mm -hmm. with no tights, body suits and ankle socks on our backs, the soles of our feet together, like butterfly. Mm -hmm. And they'd come around and push your knees, these two older women. (laughs) And I just remember even at 12, I feel like a piece of raw chicken. (laughs) I don't think I'm supposed to feel like a piece of raw chicken, but yeah, I mean, the price is high, but there are people, I mean, hats off to people who are able and willing to do it, I guess. Well, you know, there's a little saying that we divide so much in the world when we say there's two kinds of people and, you know, there really are. I use that statement all the time because it applies so regularly where you go, okay, in that respect, there's two kinds of people. And if you've got it in you, then go give her. Because maybe you're going to have just a wonderful, wonderful, joyful, huge experience as a star. But probably you aren't. (laughs) That's the sad part, right? It's so few. No matter how brilliant you are, by the way. Exactly. That's a really good point. It's not about if you're good or not. No. No. You know? I remember getting asked if I wanted to come back to New York. Do you remember a jazz teacher named Jojo? Oh, yeah. I took a class from Jojo and Jojo asked me if I wanted to come and dance in his company, which wasn't groovy. Certainly wasn't going like, oh my God, yes. But I did think about it for a minute. Yeah. And it was like, um, I live here in New York. And of course, New York in the early eighties was grim. Oh yeah. It was cool, super cool. And like I say, there's a lot of punky stuff going on which was cool, but it was dangerous and grim. Get out of Central Park. It's 5.30. Get out. Get out now. It would be like, what? I was just going to buy a joint from someone. Don't buy drugs from someone in Central Park. Like, oh my God. (laughs) Oh man. I remember being in New York on a school trip with the dance department from, I went to high school in London, Ontario. And it was like a fame high school. I feel very lucky that I went to that high school because my mom got a job as the head of the visual arts department at Western. So we all went to London, but we went on a school trip to New York City in 1980, I want to say 89. It was just starting to get cleaned up then, but not much. It was still pretty scary, but we went to classes. We went to like Alvin Alien took class there and... Oh my God. And the Graham studio, it was phenomenal, but it also looked so hard. Yeah. I wonder if people are still doing that. I would imagine they are, but you know, that whole era, it was just normal for virtually everyone I knew in Canada to 
go to New York every summer and dance? That's a good question. I don't know if folks do that anymore. I think into the 90s, people were early 2000s. I don't hear that from any of the youngins that I work with, but I don't really roll with the pure dance crowd anymore. So I wouldn't really know if that's still a thing in the dance world. I think people go to Israel. Oh, to dance with, what's his name? Ohad. Ohad Narim. He's the trip. Oh my God, such a trip. What's it called? Gaga? Gaga technique, yeah. Yeah. Who came first, him or lady? (laughs) I think he did. He did. That could be like a whole dissertation. You could write a PhD on the parallels. But I want to go back to, you're not in the pure dance world, nor am I, but I get my funding from the dance sections. So I got to put my high legs and my pirouettes in the shows. I would love for you to talk about, for you, what's the difference? And is there a difference? You know, you're one of the few people who bridge the two disciplines, if they even are two disciplines. Anyway, that's my question. I think they really are. I mean, there's no doubt about that. One is text-based and one is body-based. Both have crept in and begun to influence one another profoundly. But I still am seeing that the company system is still in place unless you're a modern dancer, contemporary dancer. I, I think that its preferred term is contemporary. And that work is lost in its own insulated kinosphere to my mind. I fear for it. I fear for the modern dance, the contemporary dance gang, because, you know, I see audiences falling away in droves. And I think it's because there is a focus on a theatrical or dramatic impulse in the work, but the payoffs are so few and far between. So you're seeing people sort of method act on stage, maybe, you know, really deeply within what they're doing. The virtuosity goes missing. So you're not seeing the high legs and the pirouettes or the leaps. And then you're watching, trying really hard because it appears something very dramatic is going on. And everybody seems quite often mostly upset or very serious. And then the audience just starts to go, what am I missing? Because that theatrical impulse is so strong that you you want to get into that. You want to explore what you're feeling and everything. But it's like, don't forget, people came to a dance show. So I think there's a confusion and a disconnect between audiences now. This is what I hear and observe. And so, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to young dance artists who I just will go like, wow, you're fabulous, just crazy good. And then I see the work and it's very contained Mm. and fraught and seems nervous of showing the technique that has been built up in the body. And when I'm confused by that, I'll ask questions. And quite often, it's almost like, well, that's not what I'm doing. I don't want to pander to an audience. (laughs) Oh, you know, I, I, but there's a confusion there because it's like, okay, well, that's not pandering to my mind. You know, virtuosity isn't pandering. And that's the best part about dance is that it's really, really hard to do well. People love watching somebody on stage do what they can't, right? I mean, who doesn't? That's why I used to go to the ballet and might not really dig the ballet, 
itself, the actual choreographic structure. Sometimes I love it. And often I love it. But sometimes I'm like, eh, I don't know. But the dancing. I just saw Wen Wei's company. Oh, yes. I mean, just stunning, 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 stunning. And I was so dazzled. <laughs> I wrote him like a huge fan letter. He's just the most lovely guy. You must know him. Oh, yeah. He's a sweetheart. He's a lovely human. And, you know, he wrote me right back and was like, gee, thanks. Sometimes I wonder if I'm It's like, what? That kind of dancing and those kind of artists challenged and then delivering. And the audience was just like, oh, my God, you know. And I had recently seen other work that seemed very much caught in. I mean, we are caught right now in the trauma plot in our world. And all the work that we're seeing is very, very much maybe rightfully so, concerning itself with what happened to the artist that you're viewing Mm -hmm. and not so much with, you know, any kind of a narrative that is lighter hearted or hopeful. Let's put it this way. It's the great, great artists who are being able to bridge the trauma plot, as the New Yorker referred to it, with some virtuosity, some humor, some breakthrough and therefore for the audience payoff feel good or even if you've gone deep into emotion you got it it was given to you it wasn't just a sort of mysterious cool presence far away from you you got to participate yeah you were part of it it was like I feel like I know what's going on even if sometimes the narrative's fractured there's a coherence and you're like oh I'm getting this I'm sort of teary here or suddenly you're sort of like find yourself with your mouth open, like (gasps) holding your breath. And maybe then I'll use for an example, when Wei just started all of a sudden from the midst of this extraordinary choreography, just doing a little, a little hip bump. And it it was so funny. And there was some people burst out laughing in the audience and you could feel them going like, oops, sorry. But you could tell it was like, no, it's okay. You can laugh. It's okay to laugh at a dance show. Oh, yeah. Because something is funny, is funny little movement. You know, my friend said, was that weird that I laughed so loud? I said, no, it was witty movement and relieved the tension perfectly and signaled to us we're going into another phase here. Right, exactly. That's so funny because I was just on tour. I say on tour. I was in Kelowna and before that in Revelstoke. I was performing outside of Vancouver okay. for human tour. Okay, why don't we say you were on tour? I was on tour <laughs> and I, I've been doing this practice where I ask the person who's doing the curtain speech to please tell the audience that they can laugh if they feel like it, no obligation. And it makes all the difference mm-hmm. because there is that like, oh, it's a dance show. And maybe that speaks also to, we must take this seriously. We must take ourselves seriously, which actually I wonder if that allows us to go deep enough and ride the waves of important and difficult subject matter. Yeah. But there's all kinds of contour and shading within that. And sometimes laughter, often laughter, I think is very potent. Yeah. Well, you'll see it in, you know, really strong work by indigenous artists where you'll recognize like, you know, because uh, generalization and stereotyping, but indigenous people usually have really funny senses of humor. And anyone who has indigenous friends will go like, yeah, it's true. 
And so there's lots of joking. And uh, so you can see some, you know, really bloody, heavy stuff, speaking of trauma. But, you know, the strong artists are finding ways to reflect and hope at the same time. And it's just powerful beyond words. It really, really is. And I just went to a show a couple of nights ago, the Istotzi Project with Michelle Thrushes, the artistic director of Making Treaty 7 here in Calgary. Because of COVID, they couldn't do their pieces live, so they transferred them to film. But they were able to really focus the work on camera. And it was beautifully directed by Michelle. And as much as we listened and respected the painful situations that we were watching and listening and thinking about, that the artists were engaged in, we were also regularly laughing, laughing. And they, the place was filled with energy and, and hope and, and, and good vibes, super good vibes. And, you know, uh, that was very healing. That was very powerful for everybody, settler and indige. Wow. You know, just like, wow. Talk about floating out of a theater. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And truth was spoken and, you know, truth to power was spoken. And so was a lot of very funny jokes were made. <laughs> and these things can all exist together. That's the thing. It's like the plurality, the multiplicity of yeah. of pain and joy and just taking the piss, but also being very reverent. Those things, yeah, you know, in a heartbeat, those things can all happen. Often to the greatest effect. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm teaching or, you know, coaching, you know, they're going, how do you know? How do you, that's your art. That's you, the artist going, I have to be conscious of my dynamics. So I don't just leave the audience going, oh, deflating. You want to let a little air out, put a little air in, let it hang in the air, let the bottom drop out, you know, like those are dynamics. And maybe we just, maybe, you know, we're so careful and permissive and we don't want anyone harmed. And of course, all that's really important. You know, we've got to make these changes, but not at the expense of allowing for dynamic tensions to exist and uh, theatrical architectures that can support that. Showbiz. Showbiz. We're on stage. It's all pretend. We're, even if it isn't, you know, but we're, you got to let everyone think about all that without, again, I think that that's hard for a lot of young people who have been raised with Facebook and, you know, the insane black hole of common public commentary, you know, just constantly zapping you before you even get it out of your mouth. No, judge. (laughs) It's a horrible feeling. It is. And how do you get out of that if you're literally coded in day after day after hour after hour of reading it and doing it yourself and imagining that that is some form of a reality. I don't participate in Facebook. I'm very privileged. I have a communications marketing person who also doesn't do Facebook, but we do it for the company. But I feel like there's so much to be gained from just being in the real world and There's a great book by a woman named Catherine Price called How to Break Up with Your Phone. I'll link it in the show notes. That is a very real concern for a lot of, you know, younger artists that I speak with. They're like, oh man, you know, it's scary to do what I want to do right now. I had an interesting conversation recently about satire. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, dangerous to be satirical because, you know, someone's going to take it for reals. It's like, you know, because 
satire is being threatened as like a harmful thing, unless it's on TV. Yeah, that's what I'm so confused about because TV, film, yeah, wicked satire. Yeah, it's far enough away though. It seems like somehow if you go into the theater, all of a sudden everyone's going like, don't harm me, bro. And having to put a trigger warning at the door is like, well, no, it's supposed to be unpredictable. <laughs> you know? And who's to say what triggers whom? Now, that, of course, is a very old lady talking. <laughs> you know, because I have been triggered many, 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 many times in my life. And that was, I thought, my deal. I didn't want people modifying around me to protect me. Right. I'm sort of more of the uh, school of protect thyself, you know, like resilience from the inside. Don't be going like, nobody hurt me. Except for the one I like that doesn't happen enough is if I could please not get triggered by middle-aged white men interrupting everybody. That one would be awesome (laughs) because I'm very triggered by that. Well, when I say triggered, it's my eyes rolling in my head. It gets exhausting. I feel like I'm going to have to see another optometrist because of the eye rolling. You might pop a retina. One of my eyes just might pop out of my head and roll across the room. I have, in fact, popped a few retinas in my day. I have to go like, you you must stop. I intend to now speak. (laughs) Try it in meetings and watch what happens. I'm going to ask you now just to let me speak. Just a second, let me speak. I'm going to actually finish what I'm going to say, and then I'll hand the talking stick back. Oh, what? Finish what you're going to say? But 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 wait, he's going to figure out what you were trying to say and then say it for you. Well, I'll go up against anybody in terms of listening and speaking my truth. It's two-way street. But you're, oh, no, you're right. I'm not uh, going like, poor, poor old guys. No, I know. I was just kind of making a joke. It's on my mind these days. Yeah. Who knows anymore? I, I know a really whole bunch of older white gentlemen, you know, wouldn't fucking say a word right now. This is true. Don't say boo. No. <laughs> they have zipped it. <laughs> they have zipped it. All zippers are zipped. The old zippers have been zipped. <laughs> All zippers are zipped. So it's an interesting world, eh? It is. I mean, this is utopian and probably dystopian. dystopian, utopian, but that there's room for everybody. Always was, but now, you know, that's the other thing about our social media disease, you know, it's just squishes the space and makes it feel like all the walls are coming in and they're not. Get off it for two weeks and everyone agrees. It's just like, oh, people say to me, didn't you know about that? I'll go like, no, I, I live under a very joyful rock. Oh, I love the rock I live under. My mother is constantly like, well, this, and did you see this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, nope, (laughs) didn't see any of it. I went for coffee with some friends. I mean, sometimes you feel like a fucking idiot when people go like, well, you know that. It's like, no, what? What is it? (laughs) I recently wrote a friend to say, wow, you're you're retiring. (gasps) Amazing. That's just, when did this happen? He was like, eight months ago. Like, oh, sorry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But hey, 
I don't know. Yeah, I didn't really need to know. It's not like my life depended on my my knowing about his status. I feel like the stuff that I'm going to need to know, somebody's going to tell me. Yeah, that's probably true. Hey, just like in the olden days. Yeah. Like, hey, your house is on fire. Need to know. (laughs) Need to know. Thank you. Let me check the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Let me check Facebook first. Is it on Facebook? I don't know. It's not on Facebook. I don't think it's happened. Here's a question. We'll loop back to the difference between dance and theater because I'm fascinated by it. And I, I just mush them together. Yes, you do. But what about hierarchy of language? That's one thing that I've been thinking about. Also in terms of theater, there's the practice of mime, the practice of physical theater. You know, when theater artists like, let's do a show with no words. Question, now is that dance? No, I think not because it's rooted in narrative and motivation and all that stuff, right? I would say most shows that are nonverbal theater experiments are still pretty rooted in narrative. Right. So for you, is it the separation between narrative and something being born out of like a a pure physicality that is the difference? Probably. I mean, I might sound like an uh, an old curmudgeonly loser, but I actually do really love theater and dance blurring and uh, have been practicing it for 45 years to try and figure out how to do it well. And those of us, a couple paces, you know, behind you have been looking to you. Denise is doing it. Yeah. That means I can try that too. It's okay. Well, that's so nice to hear. I hope that I have been of a little bit of service in that respect because, you know, for me, it was a really, truly genuine watching what was happening in the early eighties again, to go back and, and thinking, Oh boy, I don't like it when dancers say poetry badly while they're dancing. Ooh, it makes my skin crawl. I'm really embarrassed. I'm really, Ooh, no, don't do that. And, you know, conversely watching like maybe an actor doing some goofy movement. And I'd be like, just don't, don't move around. Just shut up. <laughs> but, you know, just quit doing, just say something. And that's pretty much what I realized. I better put my money where my mouth was and, and really try to see what it was that got under my skin so much about it. So I welcome the blurring and, you know, again, the word that, we use in our practice around the rabbits is undeniability. Mm. You know, you just need to be undeniable. It's just that whatever you're doing, protest, rage-based work, comedy, farce, a straight play, an abstract contemporary dance piece, it doesn't matter, but it just needs to be undeniable. So that no matter who's watching is going like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't really like that, but it was really fucking good. And then the standards will shimmer and it will elevate all the art forms. And we will, I'm sure, have more and more opportunities for coherence and for, you know, great interactions with the audience and and the stage again, because they're hungry for it. Oh my gosh. I totally agree. I totally agree. Also lifting up the big air quotes, disciplines. So there is that deep respect for the discipline so that if you as a theater artist want to move, you know that you need to be undeniable in that and really this podcast is effing good. Find the rigor where it can meet the text or the narrative as opposed to like, I'm just going to stick this on. Yeah. Or I'm just going to say some poetry without knowing what my voice is. 
Yeah. And I mean, we don't all have to be, you know, Sarah Bernhardt, although actually vocally she was a freak yeah. in that era of declamation of lines. But it's not that you have to go to theater school, but you do have to pay attention to what your voice is doing on a stage. And I don't know about you, but I, well, I know this happens to you too. I think we've even talked about it. There's just nothing worse than being asked to listen while someone's speaking when they don't know how to get their voice out. So there's just simple technical advantages to be considered so that the audience is not straining to hear you. I cannot believe how many people doing theater, I'll say, it's, I can't hear you. I know. It's almost like, what do you mean? What I mean is you were saying something on the stage and I can't hear it. And I don't have hearing issues. I'm actually fully able hearing wise. Yeah. And my God, people who I actually have heard really cool, lovely, talented artists come to the stage and take a role in a period piece going, no. Oh, yes. Or with a total vocal growl. And you're like, oh, oh, that's kind of <laughs> a little bit. I mean, the costume is period costume. The music then, are we not doing it vocally as well? <laughs> What a big old snob I am. Hey, sounds like you are too, T, but it's just simple. Well, and it's being clear about your choices too. Yeah. I mean, maybe it would be really interesting if you did a period piece and everybody was talking like this, but make sure that everybody is. And also that's an aesthetic choice, which is really different from an accident that you just like never noticed. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be intentional. I think so. Yeah. I think that sometimes it's just like really confusing and takes everybody out. Yeah. And is that a question? I love talking like that because my mouth doesn't move. It's super fun to do. It's super fun to do. Don't get me wrong. Could do it all day long. And I have enjoyed a few podcasts of very, very smart, which is again, the misogyny in our culture, really smart women who are talking about science and they talk like this. And I just love it because it just busts holes in the whole notion of yeah. what does authority sound like? Yeah. And, you know, again, that's a tricky one for me because I love it in the context of a podcast. Yes. Where a PhD person is talking about what they know about. Bring it. I don't care how you speak. I'm going to pay attention to the truth of what you're saying. But when you're playing a character. <laughs> exactly. Unless you're playing that character. And even if you're not, but if you've decided, well, what about I do this? It can be a blast. But again, it would be something to maybe think about. Well, it's that whole thing with all performance, theater, dance. As the audience, we see if we're excited and present for it all. It then behooves us as artists to make really conscious decisions. 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 Do a vocal warm up, Tara. Decisions. <laughs> About, you know, what are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are the lights? What is it? I am such a pain in my own ass. I'm just embarrassing myself because I'm hearing. <laughs> I say, all the time, darling. But in my book that I wrote, <laughs> my book, I talk about how I was trying to put together the 40 years of research that we yeah. did as a theater group who stuck together. And one of the other things that I wrote about was a line from Blake's play, Tears of a Dinosaur, where Michael Green is describing his wife who's laying on the table as he's placing little dinosaurs all over her body. And he's saying her body is his landscape of erotic fascination. And, and he's saying everything watchable. 
And it became a phrase that stuck in my head. And whenever I'm trying to explain to people, like everything on the stage, if you invited people to sit and watch is watchable, you should keep that in mind. Everything is watchable. So is everything the way you want it to be? If someone goes and watches, or is it just that you didn't even think about that part yet? And it's funny, you know, the work is just still happening all the time. But sometimes I'm talking to people who are finishing up their post-secondary even, and they're like, they haven't thought about that yet. I'm like, wow, I don't know what's going on. What the hell is going on? What the hell's going on, Dee? What the hell's going on? Because that's an important part of stagecraft. (laughs) I once saw a man in his probably 50s. I want to talk about the older performer in a minute. But unbuttoning and buttoning back up his shirt, and it was fucking sublime. Yeah. Speak of watchable, there was not a dry eye in the house. It was life and death and the universe in that simple action. Yeah. And because he, you know, had given some some care and understood the tenderness of that, that action and how it could illuminate or counter what he was saying, you just so appreciate it. It's just such a cadeau. You know, you're just giving such a beautiful little gift to your audience. And that means everything to me. Everything. Me too. And I feel like I learned this from you because I do speak of you as my mentor. And it was just that attention to gesture, Mm -hmm. to every little turn of the hand or the eyes and watching something go from, oh, that's pretty good, to being like, holy shit. It's an arsenal that's there for us as performers and creators. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be on a stage. There's going to be lights. If I think about every single detail, oh, this could be really, you know, and you're trying to explain intentionality and, you know, you're saying like, so it's really important because people will notice if you want them to, but you have to focus it for them. You do. You have to say, look over here. Yeah. And find ways to do it. And that's by not flailing. And if you're flailing, it's because you want to show someone flailing right then. If you're pacing and bobbing your head the whole time while you're delivering a monologue, you better be doing it for a very good reason so that when you stop, the audience goes like, oh, now what? As opposed to just pacing and flailing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love hearing this because sometimes I'm such a broken record in rehearsals, but also I love performers. I love the young folks that I work with. Because I'm almost 50 now, I can use the term young folks. But I'm interested in your perspective on aging as a movement and theater-based artists and our roles as older creators and performers. Do you have opinions? Surprise, surprise. I do have opinions. (laughs) I love opinions. Only this. It would appear to me that suggesting that your irrelevance has left you purely because of your age, is a fairly ist thing to do. It is a form of um, silencing and violence, right? It's an ist, it's ageist. And we're moving into this place in our society where we're going like, let's, let's pay f- close attention, folks, to old habits, where we just were, you know, like, oh, she did this and she that and, she, and he that and he that. And now we have to go like, wait, is it he, is it she? What am I doing here? I'm going to pay attention 
because we don't want to hurt each other and we want to be respectful and we don't want to say casually racist things by mistake over and over and over. We want to keep correcting and getting better and getting better and getting better and hopefully evolve. And it's the same thing for me on the stage. The older performer has responsibility too, just like everybody else. And that is to keep the instrument tuned, to not be crotchety unless considering everything surrounding itself. You know, when is it funny? When is it allowable? When is it to great effect? When is it just mean-spirited? You know, is it just reductionist? Are you just going like, yeah, I don't like the goddamn young people today. All this new stuff. New things are really silly. You know, it's not that, but you do have responsibilities to, you know, be articulate and to try to find ways to still help society. As far as I was given to understand, our job is to reflect back and question and and provide moments of respite here in this wackadoodle world that we live in. And so keep the instrument ready to provide that experience. For me, that has meant a lot of work. You know, I've had to do my work as an older person, understanding identitarian ideology and trying to learn its place and respect it at the same time that I'm not cowed by it, that I'm not fearful in my own work. And I started to notice a lot of fear creeping in over these last several years in people's freedom of ability to say what they meant or speak freely because they were fearful of appearing to be a right-wing motherfucker asshole. And so they would just silence themselves. And it was like, come on, we're better than that. So, you know, a uh, long answer, but I think the most important part of the older performer is that we have a, <laughs> a gift. And it's called experience. And, you know, you just can't really do what you can do if you stayed tip-top shape, what we can do when we're older. I mean, the pleasure I feel in being able to speak really complex text now and give it, you know, in the old school, in the old 19th century, I give when I'm giving my performance, but, you know, I love that expression because you are giving it. It is sharing. Yeah. And so, you know, you want to fuck around with some really tricky text and deeply poetic stuff or really challenging stuff. How can you best give it? And you definitely gain some advantages if you stayed the game, stayed the course, and you have more and more and more experience. I'm enjoying so much, like you, teaching and being a mentor. And when I say being a mentor, I also feel like I am mentored by those that I mentor. But this beautiful feedback loop that happens between, you know, those of us who are older and people who are in their 30s and their 20s. Can you speak about the relationship of teaching and mentoring with your creative practice? I mean, I do less and less of it because I stopped the lab. Right. My yearly lab, which ran for 20 years was a huge output of my questions and some answers to be researched carefully. And that loop was so incredibly meaningful to me and changed my whole life and my whole sense of purpose. And then when it was over, it was over. 
It was just like, I think I'm done. And I think there was an exhaustion of hearing my own loops. Yeah. And also wanting to free myself from the need to be that responsible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've been so fucking responsible for so long. And I I actually don't want to be anymore. So not to mention that the lab, when I started, there was the voice intensive. Yeah. And there was the OIR lab. And now I think there's a lab at every single company that exists, a lab of some kind. So there wasn't the same need, let's be honest. And I was like, I think I'm good. I think, you know, let other people take over that field. So now it's more sporadic. I have the beautiful Young Artist Program, which I'm working with Kunji Aketa here in Calgary, who's studied with me a long, long, long time and really shares the working vocabulary that we rabbits decided we would use. And I find that really, really gratifying. And it's super fun for me, but it's brand new again because I didn't do anything for COVID. Yeah, right. I booked it off. I wasn't somebody going like, oh my God, I'm going to get on Zoom right now. I was like, (laughs) how do I stay off Zoom at any cost? (laughs) (laughs) Only because I kept seeing Zoom shows that I was like, ooh, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I don't think so. I think maybe don't, don't do that. Like, oh dear. And uh, so I didn't want to do Zoom because, you know, I just didn't want to do Zoom. Me and a whole bunch of other people I know. And I just was able to hang. So I just came back to it. And it was really powerful for me. Really, really powerful to humbling, literally humbling to be in the room and like beautiful young artists like staring at me and responding when I said things. It was like, oh! <gasps> are you guys listening to me? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Holy shit. I just asked you to do that. And then you did it. Oh my God. I'm so moved. So, you know, it was pretty uh, beautiful stuff for me, pretty potent. And I'm going to do some more with them and hopefully have little pockets of, and I mentor one-on-one to whomever will have me. Kidding. Whoever has. Whoa, careful. Excuse me. I think I could mentor you. I have some ideas for you. You like a little mentoring? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have some wonderful people that still reach out and I'm happy to hang with and talk with and stuff. But as far as the more official version, it was just a gobsmacking. I loved it so much. I was just like sort of madly in love by the end of it. <laughs> I just felt high as a kite. Oh, yeah. Really neat. It's so beautiful, hey? I'm lucky enough to have some of those experiences, just like teaching, facilitating people, and just like watching the creativity bubble up and start spilling over. It's just like, wow. I know. Like last weekend, we had the shoe project, which you were part of in Vancouver, and we had ours here. And all the new Canadian women who took the stage with their stories who I've mentored over the last several months were just like amazing. And the audience was just blown away and, and the power and the emotion and, oh, it was so good. It was just like, this is beautiful. This is what it's all about. I'll link to the shoe project in the show notes, but that project just really crystallizes the power of story. Yeah. You know, looping back to theater and narrative in such an amazing way. Yeah. Yeah. 
It does. It really does. And those are often rooted in trauma because a lot of them are immigrant women or refugee women rather. And now we're going to have another whole wave and those stories are desperate to find a place. And the factors that we set up in the shoe project, I, I feel like it's such a beautiful exercise in context. Mm. You know, because you're saying to the audience, this is what this is, audience. These are going to be several women, new Canadian women. They're going to tell you their story. It's an hour and 10 minutes. So, you know, each story is short. You're setting the women up in a very safe way. You're giving them what they need to speak their stories clearly. And the, the power of the context is such that several of them this time were like, why do, what do, who comes? Why am I doing this? Who would want to hear me? I know. Are people going to come? I'm like, you buckle up. People are going to come. I'm like, they're desperate to hear you. Oh, and I've heard people here, I'm sure in Calgary too, saying that was the best theatrical experience I've had. Yeah. Communication. And like you say, context. I always say to them, like, listen, this thing, you cannot fail. It doesn't matter if you just stand there and cry the whole time. Because it'd be like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to cry. And it's like, it's okay. You can cry. If you want, you know, just gesture to one of us and we'll come up and read it for you. But if you just have to stand there and cry the whole time, that's okay. It's it's short. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, the old theater hound. I'm like, it doesn't matter because it's only like eight minutes, six minutes. So don't worry about it. And they're like, really? It's like, yeah, you do what you got to do. You're okay. It's going to be amazing. You'll see. And it's just so thrilling. I love it. Love it. Love it. When are you doing it next? We just did it in March. So I can't wait for next year. Yeah. I'm already like, Ooh, yeah. We also had to postpone by months here Yeah, because of that damn pandemic, you know, it's just been pesky. It just won't go away like a possum in the attic. God darn it. I'm sorry, but I really loved it. I, I I loved being told to stay home. Right. I've had this conversation with several people on this podcast, but at the beginning going like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to leave. <laughs> oh, fucking thank God. Oh, thank God. Although I feel like, you know, I should have really just watched as much TV as possible and just maybe tried the sourdough. I did try it once. It was a disaster. But I, I was one of those people who was like, oh my God, I got to pivot and I got to make blah, blah, blah. Yeah, not this old cowgirl. I was just like, no. Do, 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 do. I think I got to sleep in some more. I could have another martini. <laughs> I think I'm going to just read this novel for the next whole 48 hours. Okay, next pandemic, yeah. I'm phoning you. <laughs> God forbid. It might have something to do with my age, but I was just like, woohoo. Well, there's something to be said for like, this is what's going on. Maybe don't fight it because everything is pretty much outside of our control. So that's what I loved. I loved being told you have no control. It was like, really? Really? Like none? Like none. So I I can't even control properly. Like if I'm going to, cool. Like it's just, nothing's up to me. No matter how hard I work, I cannot affect the situation. That's right. Amazing. Also, of course, I am privileged. So I wasn't as terrified. Yeah. You know, 
I wasn't as terrified as so many people are and were for really good reasons. So, you know, not to sound like the most insensitive asshole fucker and sorry to anybody who's out there going like, you can just fuck off. But, you know, for me, I was after a long life of just giving her, giving her. Because as we know, artists, it's just endless. Like Ronnie Burkett, the great puppeteer, when our dear friend Michael Green died, he said to me, I'm jealous of him. But I said, what? He said, now he doesn't have to fucking work so hard anymore. I still got to fucking keep working for 30 more years. And I was like, I know. Ronnie. It's like, Ronnie, I hear you. But <laughs> that's extreme. But I have friends in our milieu who have said, like, I just want to get injured enough that I can't do anything for just a little while. Like, nothing really serious, but just enough because the the relentlessness. And I think that kind of speaks to the brokenness of our culture, too, that, you know, never sit down. (laughs) But also, you know, that is the great pursuit. You know, Buddhist nuns and monks don't take a break, you know, for good reason, because they're in service. And so it is amazing thing in our pursuit. And we are in service. Yes. So it's super cool and everything until one day somebody goes, well, I know, but actually you just got to stay home. And to just be suddenly like, really? Someone's going to give me some money every month. (laughs) The government is going to give me some money every month. What the? Speaking of guaranteed income. I know. So lucky. Yeah, that was a lucky thing for all of us. Hey, I know. Totally. I want to respect your time because we could blab for hours. I love it. My last question. Yes. This time, because I'll have you back. There's so many of your opinions. I want it. Every week? Cool. Okay. Oh, that would be fun. The T&D show. Woo! Write that jingle, Mark. What is something that you're doing or maybe that you've done for a long time or maybe it's new to keep you feeling creative, to keep you feeling like like you're in touch with your gadget? Is there something you're doing? Anything, big or small? Writing every day, working away at a, a memory project for two, three, four hours a day, walking and yoga and music, 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 poetry, poetry, poetry. So those have been my go-tos, just immersing myself in poetry and in particular in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, Ooh. committing them to memory and listening to music again, like Beethoven's late string quartets, really listen to them. Oh, that's excellent. It's just been so cool. And just, again, not going like, okay, I got to go get going. It's I've done that for an hour. It was like, oh, well, I just did that for the last five hours. Okay. Oh, time. Yeah re-examining or letting go of time or letting it take its own shape. Yeah. And I did a lot of walking in a cemetery where my ancestors are buried, including my parents, who I buried there during the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. I interred my parents' remains during the pandemic in the field of honor here in the cemetery, which is two blocks away. Just my go-to hang, (laughs) which is a little weird, but there's another thing. There's two kinds of people. People who like cemeteries and people who like, oh, fuck, no way. No, thank you. Me, I love them. I've always loved them. Yeah, but lots of people recoil. Yeah, and it's understandable. Yeah. You know, mortality is tricky. When I told the guy who I bought my electric bike from that I was going to go learn how to ride it, he was like, don't just get on this thing and ride into traffic. And I was like, really? He said, no. And I said, oh, well, I'll take it to the cemetery. And he went, oh, 
okay, well, I didn't mean it. And I was like, well, not, <laughs> not meaning I'll go there and kill myself. He literally recoiled with like horror that I was going to just go hang out in the cemetery. (laughs) So that's what I've been doing. Those are all amazing. Yeah, lucky me. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for your time. I have a big list of links of things that you brought up and I'll link those in the show notes and can't wait to talk to you again. Okay. Well, it was just heaven for me too. I just love you to pieces and Hi, Mark, by the way, and keep up the good work, TCF. And that was my interview with the Denise Clark. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much, Denise, for sitting down with me and having such a delightful chat. Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a project of Tara Cheyenne Performance, produced, edited, with original music by Mark Stewart. You can find him at Mark Stewart Music. Dot com. Please get in touch. We're on Instagram, Tarashian TCP, Facebook, Tarashian Performance, or email info at Tarashian.com. And we are recording this, releasing this in May 2022. And if you're listening to it during that general vicinity and you live on the west coast of Canada, Dancing on the Edge is coming up. And I'm performing an excerpt work in progress of a new piece called Pants. And so many of my favorite artists are also performing at Dancing on the Edge. So do check it out if you're in the vicinity. Vicinity seems to be the word of the day. Keep making shit up. Keep supporting each other. We'll see you next time. Over and out. This podcast is effing good. good.